So on this uh, beautiful 4th of July weekend, I, I need to make a little bit of a confession, right? And I'm gonna trust that this is just gonna stay between me and you, right? <laughs> so my confession is that I have seen the movie Hot Tub Time Machine. Okay, I told you <laughs> it's a little bit embarrassing. Uh, now, I've only seen the TV version. I can't imagine what the, the full-length you know, unedited version looks like, but um, you know, I, I don't recommend it. Uh, it's it's a stupid movie, but I have seen it. Uh, but basically, it's it's these four guys who end up in a hot tub that goes haywire, and they end up back in time, and and they relive a pivotal weekend in, of their high school years. They actually look like their high school selves, all this other stuff, and they kind of go through. Um, but basically, they go through this whole thing. They experience the butterfly effect. They do something different, and it changes the future. All this other thing, and they. Eventually, they figure out how to go back. Three of them go back to the present. One of them stays behind because he hated his life and wanted a chance to kind of do it over again. So these other three guys get back to the present and realize that their one friend who kind of lived his high school years and his 20s and his 30s over again used his knowledge of the future to get rich, right? And not only did he get rich, he found a way for his friends to get rich and he just kind of took advantage of it all. It's really like a dream scenario, right? Like where you know what's gonna happen before it actually happens. You you know what stocks to invest in before it's time for them to actually blow up, right? Like if we all knew about Apple 40 years ago, I think we would have bought some shares, right? So, so it's kind of this dream scenario because at one point or another throughout life, we kind of face these questions like, how do I thrive when no one else is thriving? How do I succeed in a climate where success is difficult to, difficult to come by? How do I make it when there's not much chance of making it? How do I experience everything I need to experience? How do I obtain everything I need to obtain? And, and we're in the uh, second week of a series on, on the women of the Bible. I'm gonna spend four total weeks on this. Really, in some ways, highlighting characters of the Bible that are so often unfortunately overlooked. And in so doing, we wanna highlight some of the unique characteristics and qualities of these amazing women of the Bible, but it's really, that's just kind of a means to an end because in highlighting the character and qualities of some of these women, what we're really trying to do is highlight some of the amazing, unique qualities and characters of God that are put on display in the lives of these amazing women. And so that's, uh, we, we pick up today with the, the second week of that. Joe did a great job hitting Esther last week. So if you didn't catch that, please go back and listen to it on our website, fieldstonechurch.org slash audio. Joe did a great job kicking off this series. And so today we're going to talk about a woman in the Bible who we don't know her name. We know where she's from. Uh, she's from a little town called Shunem. And so she's kind of referred to as the Shunemite woman, which feels a little bit uh, disparaging since we don't know her name, but it is what it is in this case. And just to kind of provide some context, uh, mostly going to be in 2 Kings chapter 4, um, and I'm going to hit kind of the back two-thirds of the story, really kind of more of the back seven-eighths of the story, and then come back to the beginning because I think it'll give the beginning a little bit more impact today. Uh, but just a little bit of context, we're in the time of Elisha, Elisha the prophet. Um, if you're if you grew up in church and you're like, oh man, Elijah, Elisha, I always get him confused. Elisha was second, right? The SH is second in the alphabet. That's how I kind of remember. Um, and this is 850 years before Jesus showed up. This is 400 years before Esther, who Joe talked about last week. 
Um, and uh, this prophet Elisha is passing through Shunem, where this woman and her family live. Um, he ends up staying with the family and has a pretty interesting interaction with the wife, this mother, in 2 Kings chapter 4. So we'll pick up in verse 14. Um, and Elisha's kind of talking with his servant Gehazi about, you know, how, how can we maybe bless this family because of uh, these interactions? So he says, what, what can be done for her? And Gehazi said, she has no son and her husband is old. So then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my Lord, she, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. So obviously, this was a sensitive spot for her, right? This is a topic that she wasn't ready to give her heart and mind to. Uh, but verse 17, it says, But the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. The child grew, and one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers, and he said to his father, My head, my head. His father told a servant, Carry him to his mother. Typical dad, right? Like, <laughs> kids having an issue, take him to his mom. She can deal with it. Anyways, I digress. After the servant had lifted him up, and carried him to his mother. The boy sat on her lap until noon and then died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and then shut the door and went out. So obviously they had a room set aside for Elisha for when he would come to town. Verse 22, she called her husband and said, please send me one of the servants and a donkey so that I can go to the man of God quickly and return. Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. He knew that it'd be way more predictable to find Elisha on those specific days because they knew where he'd be celebrating. That's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, lead on. Don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. And when he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant, look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything is all right, she said. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi, the servant, he came over to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is in bitter distress. But the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? Didn't I tell you don't raise my hopes? And Elisha said to Gehazi, Tuck your cloak into your belt. Take my staff in your hand and run. Don't greet anyone you meet, and if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound and no response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him the boy has not awakened. And so when Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on the couch. He went in shut the door, and prayed to the Lord. Then, this is, gets a little bit weird. Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. So, kind of a weird scene to picture, right? As he stretched himself out on him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got on the bed and stretched out on him one, once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. I don't know. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite, and he did. When she came in, he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. 
So this is, this is an amazing scenario, right? First, she's given this gift of a son. Um, she may have had daughters already, but you gotta understand in that culture, the son is key. Like her husband's getting old, the son represented a legacy. It represented someone to pass the wealth down to, pass the land down to. It represented stability and continuity and health and safe. Like a son was huge in this culture because all of those possessions, all of those properties, all of those things would be passed down to a son. And so you might be thinking, okay, she's wealthy now. Great. She's healthy now. Great. Things are stable now. Great. But what happens when my husband's gone? What happens when the stability is gone? Having a son represented all of those things. And so all of a sudden, here comes those questions that we ask, right? Like, how am I going to thrive if there's not much chance of thriving? How am I going to obtain the things that I need when it's a climate, when it's not easy to obtain those things, right? She's asking all those questions that we ask. How can I control the future if I can't even control now? How can I make the decisions now if I don't have the information, if I don't have what I need to make those decisions and do what I need to do? And so she gets this gift of a son that Elisha promised her. But then when the son gets sick and dies, not only does she get this miraculous gift of a son, she gets a miraculous healing, a miraculous resurrection of this son. And in the process, she shows amazing faith in God, right? She says, that's all right. It's going to be okay. Things are fine. Things are and things will be as they should be. Even in the midst of uncertainty and fear and mourning, she had the faith and the courage to say, I know this is going to be okay. I need to put this in God's hands. I need to go see the man of God, Elisha. And she puts amazing trust in him and shows amazing persistence, amazing honesty, really just an amazing woman and an amazing response to the things that she was being asked to face, where she says, I, I know what this God says, and I believe him, and I know what this God is capable of, and I trust him to do what's best for me and for my family. And basically, through her actions, through her decisions, she says, even if things play out differently than the way that I want, differently than the way that I think that they will, even if I still don't understand, even if I still don't know, it will be all right. It's gonna be okay. It's a pretty wild story. And, and believe it or not, this family um, shows up a few chapters later, um, if you jump to 2 Kings chapter 8, um, in between these two scenarios. So you got the first scenario, and in between, their land experiences a famine. They come under siege by an enemy. It's a very messed up region. Things are not good. And so we jump to 2 Kings chapter 8, and Elisha uh, interacts with them again. It says, now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, go away with your family and stay a while wherever you can because the Lord has decreed a famine in the land that will last seven years. So he kind of gives them this heads up. The woman proceeded to do as the man of God said. She and her family went away and stayed in the land of the Philistines for seven years. At the end of those seven years, she came back from the land of the Philistines and went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Remember, she left everything behind. So Somebody else probably picked up the land. Maybe the, maybe the kingdom took over the land. The king was talking to Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, and had said, tell me all the great things Elisha has done. And just as Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, the woman whose son Elisha had brought back to life came to appeal to the king for her house and land. So Elisha's servant is with the king when the woman shows up to ask about her land. And the servant said, this is the woman. This is, this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And the king asked the woman about it, and she told him. 
Then he assigned an official to her case and said to him, Give back everything that belonged to her, including all the income from her land from the day she left the country until now. So we don't know. It's possible her husband is gone at this point um, because she was the one kind of leading her family out and back. Um, but basically, in this, she's given a couple gifts here. She's given the gift of a warning, right? A gift of safety when that wasn't guaranteed that things are going to get bad. You're going to want to get out of here. Stay away for seven years. She's kind of spared that uncertainty that most people were going through there, not knowing what was coming, not knowing how long it was going to last. Spared the difficulty that comes with a famine of that kind. So she was given that gift, but she was also given the gift of restoration of her land, given the gift of justice. Without, you know, she had the advanced warning. They left before it got bad. They came back. They lost their land. They assumed uh, that it was gone for good. And then not, this, this king, who wasn't exactly the most righteous king ever, grants her this justice and gives her this land back. It wasn't by chance. It wasn't, it wasn't coincidence. Elisha is hooking these people up, right? Like, like the, most, the most powerful prophet maybe that ever lived is hooking this lady up and her family Grants her a miracle baby, a miracle healing, a miracle warning about the famine, miracle favor from the king. But why, right? There's, there's probably a ton of people in those days that were desperate, a ton of people that were looking for safety and stability and provision. Probably a lot of people desperate to escape this famine. Probably a lot of people desperate to get their land back, desperate for justice. So, and so why of all people was this family, this woman, why were they granted these gifts, these miracles? This is where we shift back to the beginning, right? Remember I told you we're going to hit the first or the last two-thirds, the last seven-eighths or whatever. So we got to go back to 2 Kings chapter 4 and hit a few verses before we started last time. And I want to show you how this all started, how this relationship with Elisha started, how they kind of came about to experience some of the favor that they were shown. 2 Kings chapter 4. Let's go to verse 8, which is a, a few verses before we started before. It says, One day Elisha came, went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So then whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room for him on the roof and put, him, put a bed in there and a table and a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. And he said to his servant, Call the Shunammite. So he called her and she stood before him. And Elisha said to him, Tell her, you've gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or commander of the army? Well, Elisha's like, listen, you have blessed us. You've been generous. Like, what can we do for you? And she says, I have a home among my own people. And if you were to read this in the NLT, I love how it says, it says, my family takes good care of me. She says, listen, what I have is enough. What I've been given is more than enough. I, there's nothing that you need. So how did their relationship begin? How did she come into this close contact with Elisha? She, it, their, their relationship came about by her, her saying, come share in what we have. Let Her saying to her husband, Let's allow him to experience what we've experienced. Let's, let's go out of our way to care for him. Let's say to him, our family is your family. Our home is your home. Our food is your food. This relationship began with her showing tremendous generosity, tremendous service, tremendous focus on 
others' needs. And then in the face of Elisha's offer, she goes above and beyond and doubles down and says, I, I have a home here among my people. My family takes good care of me. I have everything that I need and more. I, I have everything that someone could ask for or hope for. And so in the midst of tremendous generosity, in the midst of tremendous service, she also shows tremendous gratitude, tremendous contentment, tremendous humility. This story, their friendship with Elisha, her faith, God's miracles, the hookups from Elisha, they were a living testament to a couple powerful truths that we find in the book of Proverbs about how God does business in the world, right? It's a living testament to these truths. Proverbs eleven twenty five. It says, whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. And then Proverbs 22, 4. This is from the, the, uh, the ESV, English Standard Version. It says, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Right? The provision that we're looking for the relationships with people that we're looking for, the life that we're looking for. Those things are a result of humility and fear of the Lord. And so this woman and their family, they weren't experiencing luck. They weren't experiencing these things because of coincidence. They weren't just getting hooked up from some influential, powerful man that they knew. They weren't just buying happiness with their wealth. In the midst of the questions that so many of us ask, right? How do I thrive? How do I succeed? How do I get and obtain what I need? How do... How do I experience provision when it seems like a difficult time to experience any of those things? All of the things that we walk through at one time or another, in the midst of those questions, this family, this woman, they were experiencing the character of a God who provides and protects and preserves his people. People who not only know of the character of God, but people who live out the character of God. That's what they were experiencing. Not because of luck, not because of being at the right place at the right time, but because these people not only knew and acknowledged and believed God, but they lived out and were a human embodiment of his character and qualities. And he blessed them for it. He took care of them for it. He took care of their needs. So what, what does that look like in my life? You want to feel like you're thriving when no one else seems to be thriving, right? You, you, want to, you want to have and experience everything that you need, even if it feels like there's no guarantee of that happening, right? You're like this Shunammite woman. You're like every person that's ever existed. Like, how do I experience life to its fullest? How do I, how do I feel like God's going to just take care of me, right? I want to take you to Micah 6, 8. I'm going to read it in the NIV because this is kind of our application this verse tells us exactly what we need to know and what we need to do in order to experience life the way this woman experienced life. Micah 6, 8. He, God, God has shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? He requires that you act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And uh, the message version, it's not one I go to very often, but I love the way it kind of summarizes this verse. L listen to how it says, and this, remember, this is our application. This is, 
what we're being called to do in response to the truth that's embodied in this woman from Shunem. Here's how it says it. But God's already made it plain how to live. He's made it plain what to do. He's made it plain what he's looking for in men and women. It's quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. I'm going to read that again. The, the, the things that God is asking of us, the thing he was asking of this woman, and she lived up to it brilliantly, right? It says, it's quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. So there are places in your life where you, there, there are places where you need to humble yourself and take a lesser view of yourself. There are places in your life where you need to show more compassion. What is it? There are places in your life when you, where you need to fight more fiercely for justice and fairness. Those places exist in all of our lives. Some of those things are probably shared among many of us where we need to be more compassionate, where we need to be more just, where we need to fight for justice, fight for fairness, fight with humility. Like this amazing woman from Shunem, if you push others, if you push others' needs to the forefront and put your own self and your own needs in the background, in the proper perspective, and if you elevate God to his proper status, I have a feeling that if you do justly, and you love mercy, and you walk with humility, you're gonna be just fine. Just like the woman from Shunem. Let's pray. God, um, it's a crazy story, interesting story. I mean, God, whenever I run into Elijah, I'm gonna have some questions about how and why he did certain things. But God, what we're so thankful for is an example of a strong, passionate, um, humble, uh, faithful woman that we can look to and see her story and see her life and copy it and replicate it and take some just tangible truths from her life and her experiences. God, thanks for her example. Thanks for the truth in your word. I pray that we as a people, we as a church, we as families would be an embodiment of what you've called us to in the book of Micah. You've called us to fight for justice. You've called us to show compassion. You've called us to humble ourselves and elevate you and elevate other people. And God, if we faithfully adhere to those things, I pray that you would come through with your promise that true life and provision and everything that we need, everything we long for will be taken care of if we not only believe in you, not only acknowledge what you're like, but we live out what you're like. God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Happy 4th of July. We'll see you right back at Fieldstone next week, 11 o'clock service out at the pavilion. Can't wait to see you.